0: This week, using genetically modified yeast to make
1: opiates and the need for regulation now. If this actually happens, if they actually make a unified yeast strain or they you know they unify the opiate pathway in a single agent, all well, hell will break
2: loose. And the oldest stone tools ever found.
3: I could immediately see the scars and the features characteristic of napped stones, but they were also different.
0: Plus the benefits of being choosy about who you sleep with. This is The Nature Podcast for May the 21st, 2015.
2: I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Adam Levy.
0: In the hit TV series Breaking Bad, the main character, Walter White, is a chemistry teacher. He falls on hard times and turns to making the drug methamphetamine to make ends meet.
4: You know the business, and I know the chemistry. I'm thinking maybe you and I could partner up you uh you want to cook crystal meth That's right
0: The series portrays a homespun setup their meth lab is in a bus In the real world too meth production is often small scale and decentralized whereas other substances like opium for instance are more often produced in just a few places in large quantities legally or illicitly and then shipped But that could easily change
1: I didn't realize how potentially imminent the creation of a strain of yeast that could synthesize opiates from glucose was.
0: This is Chapel Lawson, a political scientist interested in drug control. He's talking about a series of new papers that form most of the recipe for making opiates from genetically tweaked yeast and sugar. One of the researchers involved is John Duber at the University of California in Berkeley.
5: People are familiar with taking sugar and doing fermentations to make ethanol, in yeast, the beer brewing process.
0: Duba's team have provided one step in the recipe for opiate homebrew, the creation of a chemical called reticuline. This molecule is the building block of over 2,000 other molecules, including the opiates, but also including molecules that could fight cancer, kill pain, even suppress coughs.
5: So in essence our paper describes how we're essentially doing a similar process of feeding the yeast the sugar, but now we're converting that to this compound reticuline, that's the hub. And from that hub, all these 2,500 molecules are made. The downstream enzymes will take this hub and add or subtract different functional groups to that that chemical scaffold.
0: Being able to produce these molecules and even improve on nature's versions could provide safer, less addictive medicines even completely new ones.
5: In some cases, we want activities that the poppy plant might not have been motivated to, to have. We want them to act to help our human health. That might not have been the primary goal of the poppy plant.
0: But the potential for misuse has not escaped the makers, or those who
1: would regulate their produce.
0: Chapel Lawson again.
1: If this actually happens, if they actually make a unified yeast strain, or they, you know, they unify the opiate pathway in a single biological agent that then is hard to trace and can easily produce opiates outside the lab, all hell will break loose. In theory, it could have a really dramatic effect on criminal markets. Production could go from something that's more concentrated and could be much more decentralized. Prices would drop, availability would increase, and we, we assume use could increase dramatically.
0: In fact, Duber and his colleagues have been consulting scholars like Chapel Lawson from the earliest stages. Duber's team have just published their results in Nature Chemical Biology, and at the same time, three bioethicists have written a comment piece for Nature. They want to get a discussion going about how best to keep tabs on the research. One of the authors is Chapel Lawson, you heard from him earlier. Here's his colleague Kenneth Oi, who studies bioethics and science policy at MIT.
6: Saying that people ought to talk Usually doesn't mean that much, but in this case, we're hopeful that this will be placed on the agenda of the major international organizations fairly quickly before the work is completed, not after, before the, the yeast strains are developed and leak out. Reacting to this after the fact would not be a good idea. If you had a robust and efficient strain of opiate producing yeast in circulation, once out and once used, it would spread. It could be used by many and it would have fairly fundamental effects on illicit and illicit systems of supply.
0: The scientists doing the work on yeast are well aware of the risks their recipe could create if the yeast strain escaped or was stolen from the lab. Oi and Lawson recommend a few preventative steps.
6: Our recommendations include trying to build into the modified yeast things that make them a little harder to raise, Things that make the final product less valuable to um, those that would seek illicit uses. Modifications of these to have markers that would allow law enforcement to identify them.
0: Because, as Oi points out, this new method is pretty different from what's come before.
6: What we have right now is a worldwide system of controls on opiate production. But of course, understandably, it focuses on poppy. And the question of how this alternate technology, this alternate means of producing, um, should be handled is something that should begin under discussion right now. And there are a couple of forms where that might take place.
0: The comment team recommends bringing together experts from many different countries. As with other ways of making and trafficking controlled substances, this could become an issue with no respect for borders. Then, Oi says, the scientists have some more work to do.
6: There is a need. More explicit consideration of the technology and its effects, as well as more research on the viability of some of the technical fixes that we discussed, weakening the strain, or producing intermediate products or final products that might be less appealing for illicit use, or even the strategies for creating markers on the yeast. Those technical issues need to be examined and investigated. People need to be putting in the research time to see if they are actually viable.
0: These are not steps that can be taken slowly. Even Duber, doing the work, has been surprised by the speed of the progress.
5: Maybe a year ago I would have said this is probably 10 years away. Now I'm thinking it's more on two years away.
0: John Duber, whose paper appears in Nature Chemical Biology, and before him, comment authors Kenneth Oy and Chapel Lawson. Find the paper at nature.com ncb and the comment piece at nature.com news.
2: Sex. Why do we do it?
0: Adam, the most naïve question you've ever asked. Get your mind
2: out of the gutter, Kerry. I mean evolutionarily, of course. As a human, it may seem like the natural way to reproduce, but plenty of other organisms reproduce on their own. Nice and simple. So why did sex evolve in the first place? In sexually reproducing species, one sex, normally the males, competes for the opportunity to mate. They might compete by fighting, like elephant seals, or by having the most beautiful feathers, like peacocks. Matt Cage of the University of East Anglia thinks that this sexual selection helps species to avoid a buildup of damaging mutations. I called Matt to find out why sex is so difficult for evolutionary biologists. I mean, why sex is so difficult for evolutionary biologists to explain.
7: Sexual reproduction is now the norm, but it does present an evolutionary theoretical problem. Because if you think about it, sexual reproduction requires the production of males. And in the majority of species, males contribute very little to reproduction apart from their spermatozoa. So you could imagine an all-female population that produced only daughters, each of which could reproduce themselves, being a lot more effective at proliferating offspring than a sexual population. So there's this theoretical puzzle. Why does sex exist? Why do so many species produce sons when they could just spend all their resources on daughters?
2: So there must be some pretty big benefits to offset those disadvantages. What are the best current ideas to explain how sexual reproduction is worthwhile?
7: Well, one of the original ideas was that sex kind of turned over the genome, so to speak, but really that doesn't actually generate any greater levels of diversity than an asexual population of an equivalent size and genetic variability. And uh, that kind of led us on to looking at a particular process within sexual reproduction that we call sexual selection as being the mechanism that allows the concentration of good genes, so to speak, and the elimination of bad genes.
2: So sexual selection occurs when individuals of the same sex compete for a mate and the idea is that in theory the best mates with the best genes are selected. Sexual selection isn't exactly a new theory for evolutionary biologists, is it?
7: Darwin recognised its importance. In fact, he struggled with the idea for a long time because it was obvious that many of the traits that had evolved due to sexual selection kind of worked in the opposite direction to his ideas about natural selection, which was survival of the fittest. So he famously wrote to his friend that whenever he looked at a peacock's tail, it made him feel sick. And this was because it just didn't tally with his idea of, of natural selection, eliminating wastage, eliminating costly signals and and allowing only the survival of the fittest, when individuals were, were developing these very costly traits.
2: And how did you investigate the potential role of sexual selection in improving the genetic pool for a species?
7: What we wanted to know was whether sexual selection could act as an important process in filtering out something that all reproducing species suffer from, which is the build-up of mutation load. The basic process of of reproduction involves the risk of mutations building up. Now of course if those mutations are very bad and have a large effect then they get quickly stripped out of the population by natural selection but a lot of the time those mutations have a very low effect and they kind of sit quietly hiding within the genome having a relatively subtle effect and this is where we think sexual selection might have played a role because to be good at reproduction especially in the face of sexual selection, you actually have to be good at pretty much everything. So the idea is that sexual selection could act as a filter to remove some of that mutation load from a population, thereby improve its genetic health. And so we set out to test that idea using a little flower beetle called Tribolium castanium. Listeners might have found them in the back of their cupboards in their cereal packets. It's a really big pest of stored products, but it's been a great model for this kind of work
2: so you split your flower beetles into groups and in one group you had females who could choose between the males they mated with and in the other group you had females who had very little choice over what males they could mate with did you find any benefit from increased sexual selection between your two groups
7: what we found clearly was that populations that had gone through histories of high sexual selection resisted extinction under inbreeding and maintained fitness really well Whereas those populations that had not had histories of very high sexual selection basically went extinct really quickly and showed really fast reductions in fitness.
2: What was the total runtime
7: for the experiment? So the total runtime from start to finish was 10 years. It's a long-term experiment, but we took the long-term view.
2: Are you and your team now
7: completely sick of the sight of flower beetles? No, we're happy to keep working with them. In fact, one of my team has had to move back to California And she regularly emails me to say how much she misses her little beetles. In fact, she emailed me today to say that.
2: Now, in some cases, sexual selection seems super specific. You mentioned Darwin commenting on the tail of the peacock. In what way could such a specific mechanism for sexual selection really be checking the whole genome for detrimental mutations?
7: what characterises a lot of these obvious sexually selected traits is that they are indeed very costly to maintain and reproduce and to be able to do that you have to be good at pretty much everything. So you have to be good at finding food, defending yourself against predators, resisting parasites. All those range of traits that we know allow an individual to survive through to reproduction. So I guess the peacock's tail is the ultimate manifestation of genetic quality right the way across the genome.
2: That was Matt Gage from the University of East Anglia. For more on this research, head to nature.com forward slash nature.
0: Coming up, the oldest stone tools ever found.
2: But first, it's time for the best science from elsewhere. It's the research highlights with Shamani Bandel.
8: Zebrafish can make their own sunscreen according to a study of their genome. UV protective chemicals have been found in fish before, but scientists assumed they came from diet or from microbes in or on the fish. Now, a US-based team found fishy genes that made a compound called gadusol and then confirmed their find in fish embryos. Then they plugged the gene into yeast, which started producing gadusol. Yeast-based sunscreen farms are surely on the horizon. The paper is in eLife. Ah, they grow up so fast. No, not children, galaxies. Quasars are infant galaxies, powered by gigantic black holes. Astronomers rarely spot these galaxies because their birth is over in a flash, relatively speaking. But now, a cluster of four quasars has been seen. A team using a telescope facility on Hawaii found the toddler formations at the heart of a huge cloud of gas and dust. The cloud is so far away that researchers think it probably formed when the universe was half its current age. The quasars are lighting up the surrounding gas and probably developing into a massive galactic family with a bright future. That paper is in Science.
2: One of the great technological advancements in human history was the invention of stone tools, marking the beginning of what archaeologists call the Stone Age. A team based in Kenya has just published a description of the oldest stone tools ever found, made by human ancestors over three million years ago. Here again is Shamini Bandel, who's been learning their craft.
8: The art of banging two rocks together, or napping, takes more skill than you'd think. As an expert in early Stone Age tools,
3: Sonia Harmond has had a lot of practice. So the noise you are hearing um, is typically the noise of a, a flaking process. I'm holding... Uh, the hammerstone in my right hand and I'm striking it against uh, a block of lava so that I can detach, quite easily, a flake. These sharp-edged flakes would have been great for cutting
8: meat or plant material. For the first members of the genus Homo, this invention would have helped lead to the success of Homo sapiens today. Or so we thought, until Sonia and her team, based at the West Takana Archaeological Project in Kenya, found something unexpected.
3: One morning on the way to a particular survey zone, we were driving in, a, in the dry riverbed and took the left branch instead of the right and ended up in a new area that looked promising. So we were very excited. The team stopped to explore
8: and it wasn't long before someone spotted a stone tool lying on the surface of the ground. But Sonia expected something similar to the style of tools that she'd learned to make.
3: I could immediately see the scars and the features characteristic of napped stones, but they were also different. They were also larger and not typical of the tools uh, that we know from the older one culture. When
8: Sonia says older one, she's referring to the oldest stone tool culture known to date, first found two point six million years ago. But it soon became clear that the new find was 700,000 years older than that. Jason Lewis, Sonia's co-director on the project, was intrigued by this leap back in time.
9: When we first discovered the tools, we had to start re-examining who the potential makers were and why they might have started making such tools at this new time.
8: As a paleoanthropologist, what was exciting for Jason was that these tools predate our genus, Homo, traditionally considered to be the first to invent
9: stone-napping technology. So the idea was that our lineage alone took the cognitive leap of hitting stones together to strike off a sharp flake, and that this behavior was the foundation of our eventual evolutionary success. New data over the last decade has led paleoanthropologists to start to question this view.
8: New data now including these 3.3 million-year-old tools. But if HOMO wasn't around back then, who made them? I asked Fred Spohr, professor of evolutionary anatomy at University College London. Like Jason, Fred is interested in human evolution, and the lemequi site where the tools were found is of particular personal interest to him.
10: The site where the stone tools are found is the site that, that our team the team led by Mivliki also worked in the late 90s and we actually have several fossils from the same site we created a new species we came up with a new name kenyanthropus platyops what has completely changed now is that we had never expected that there would be stone tools at all when you look at these creatures like astropithecus or kenyanthropus we sort of never took tool making into account
8: so we believed that it was only members of our own lineage, Homo, that could actually make stone tools.
10: Yes, it was, was very much, I think, seen that way. That, in fact, the genus Homo would be, our lineage would be defined, among other things, by making stone tools. The oldest named member of our lineage, Homo habilis, it was also included in, in the lineage Homo because stone tools were found in the vicinity. So the two have been linked very much with each other.
3: And
8: were you surprised to find stone tools this old outside of the genus Homo?
10: I was surprised and also not surprised. If you know to what sophistication even chimpanzees or capuchin monkeys already manipulate stones to crack nuts or, you know, do various various things. If you know that, that that happens in other primates, then you have to be realistic and know that going well into the time period of Australopithecus and Kenyanthropus that some form of stone tool uh, would have been made.
8: Whether these tools were made by Kenyanthropus, Australopithecus or some unknown species, Jason Lewis says the find does tell us something important about our own evolution.
9: I think this discovery does challenge the idea that tool making, brain expansion, all these behaviours and features came in at one time, as one package with the origins of the genus Homo. Uh, we're going to find evidence that uh, these features were coming into our, our lineage at different times as responses to different pressures.
8: In hindsight, it seems obvious that as apes evolved from stone bashing, chimp like creatures to older one levels of sophistication, there must have been many stages along the way. And maybe this was just one of them.
3: Uh, the the Lomequitus are sophisticated enough that they are likely not. From the first time, a tried to nap a stone tools. We are pretty convinced about that. And, well, I'm very sure, I'm fairly certain that there are many, many more tools like Lomekwii 3 or even different waiting for us out there. That was Sonia Harmond and
8: Jason Lewis on the phone from Kenya practising their stone napping skills. Their description of the new 3.3 million-year-old stone tools is published in Nature this week. We also heard from Fred
2: Spohr in the Nature Podcast studio. That was Charmelee Bandel finding out just how hard banging two rocks together really is.
0: News time now, and joining me on the line from Washington, D.C., it's U.S. News Editor Matt Crenson. Listeners will have heard of the LHC, of course. We're always banging on about that thing. Uh, but in the news section this week, you have an article about a new proposed different type of collider.
4: That's right. So, this is a machine that uh, physicists in the nuclear physics community have wanted to build for a long time, um, at least 10 or 15 years. And it would not smash uh, protons together the way that the LHC does, but it would smash together big, essentially atomic nuclei and electrons, which are tiny little pinpoints.
0: What's the point of that then? Because we already do so much smashing elsewhere.
4: Well, smashing is what particle physics is all about. You uh, want to break things apart to figure out how they're put together. So there's already a a collider in uh, New York on Long Island called RIC, the Relativistic Heavy Ion Collider. What it does is it takes gold nuclei that have been stripped of their electrons and accelerates them up to enormous speeds near the speed of light and then smashes them together. The nucleus is made of, everybody knows, protons and neutrons, but then those protons and neutrons are made of quarks that are held together with gluons. Um, and they're called gluons because they act like glue. They stick everything together. And it's still not really entirely understood how that process works. So this collider would help understand that process a little better. Um, and the reason it would, be, it would be an improvement over what exists now is because of the electron component of it. It's like a, a very precise little uh, bullet rather than two gigantic nuclei. The big question that they want to figure out has to do with something called spin. This is a quantum property. When you add up all the the spin of the, the quarks in, in a nucleus, you don't get enough to account for all of the spin in the whole um, nucleus. And so um, there must be something going on with the gluons that is not completely understood.
0: That keeps me awake at night too, I have to say. And presumably there are reasons, forgive my naivety, why you couldn't just um, take your gold nuclei, take your electrons and just sort of whiz them around the large, large Hadron Collider or something instead.
4: Essentially, that's what they want to do. In fact, the news this week is that uh, a, a committee that advises the U.S. Department of Energy is says it's going to recommend to build uh... one of these colliders and there are two sites in the u.s. that would be prime candidates one is rick so they would just modify rick to collide electrons with the gold nuclei that are already going around in circles there um, they just have to build uh, an electron beam the other option would be to similarly modify a collider that's in virginia that's an electron accelerator and so it would have to have um, the the heavy ions either of those would cost Uh, about a billion to a billion and a half dollars and the cost is an issue. Uh, Budgets have been going down for this kind of research in the US and there's some concern that there might not be enough money. There's bound to be some calls for international participation in this and uh, there's been some interest in building a similar machine either affiliated with the LHC at CERN or in China
0: high energy physicists, they like things to go very, very quickly once they've built their accelerators. But building the accelerators is a very slow process often. What's the sort of timeline we're looking at here?
4: They're hoping to start building it in 2020 and have it finished in 2025. Um, But that's always subject to change.
0: Now, moving on, um, we have a a rather surprising story online this week on the Nature website that's about how diseases hop from animals to humans. We know that they do that, don't we? We, There's a class of diseases called zoonotic diseases that do this.
4: That's right. Uh, So a lot of the nastiest diseases we know, including Ebola, um, Lyme disease, malaria, hantavirus, these are things that circulate in animals and then jump to humans
0: and a new paper in the Proceedings of the National Academies of Sciences has modelled this process.
4: Yeah, so it's taking a different approach. I mean, one way you can study this is to just look at past outbreaks and look for similar situations in the future. But this uses a technology called machine learning, which is kind of an artificial intelligence. It is artificial intelligence. So what they did was they started with a group of rodents that are known to carry zoonotic diseases and they fed as much information as they could into a computer uh, about them, and then let the computer essentially cogitate on it and try to find things that they have in common. After it had made some connections, they tested it by uh, giving it uh, examples of rodents that are known to carry zoonotic diseases and aren't, and telling it to guess. And it did a very good job, about a 90% success rate. So once that computer program was developed, they dumped information about thousands of rodents, 2,277 rodents, into it uh, and asked it to to guess which ones might be uh, zoonotic disease carriers. And it came up with a list of about 150, including some that you wouldn't think of normally, like squirrels and guinea pigs, that might be likely to carry these diseases and transmit them to humans.
0: I suppose this is early days. This kind of model probably needs... Needs to gather more evidence for its assertions, as it were. But are we at greater risk than we thought? Then from many of these critters that we have, we you know they weren't simply weren't on our radar at this point.
4: It, yeah, it's too early to say, but I think you you put your finger on it when you said they weren't on our radar. Now they are, um, and uh, researchers who are interested can go out and study these creatures a little more carefully and see if maybe um, these characteristics are making them more likely to pass diseases to humans.
0: But for now, you know, nobody should worry about giving their little pet guinea pig a cuddle.
4: I'd wash my hands after playing with the guinea pig. I think that's not
2: such a bad idea.
0: Thanks, Matt. And as always, you can follow those stories and many more at
2: nature.com slash news. That's all from us. Tune in next time to meet the scientists who worry about temperature so you don't have to. I'm Adam Levy.
0: And I'm Kerry Smith.